and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Daniel Takish, Regulatory Policy Fellow at the Niskanen Center. We will discuss his new white paper, Why Intellectual Property is a Misnomer, which he co-authored with Brink Lindsay, Vice President of the Niskanen Center. So welcome to the show, Daniel. Thank you very much for having me. So I was wondering if, if in starting this interview, you could talk a little bit about how you became interested in intellectual property, intellectual property theory, and intellectual property policy, and how this white paper project is related to the mission of the Niskanen Center. Sure. Uh, so to begin, um, the Niskanen Center is a moderate think tank uh, or could broadly be described as as center-right, where we focus on public policy. We have various areas, and the department I work for specifically is the Captured Economy Project. It's based on the book by Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis, and their goal is to identify areas where government actively intervenes in the market, which irks uh, folks on the political right, in a way that has the effect of redistributing wealth upward, which bothers folks on the political left. So I work specifically in the intersection uh, of those two areas. And in the book, uh, Lindsay and Tellis have four main case studies, those being financial regulation, intellectual property, occupational licensing, and zoning and land use regulation. And when the project started out, we started we tried to cover all of the areas, and we do on our blog, and we have weekly updates on progress that is coming, uh, that, uh, that is happening in those various policy areas. But the main reason I got interested in intellectual property uh, was honestly because it irked me the most. Um, I found that a great many uh, of components of intellectual property law are absurd. Um, in particular, I, I am a, a very much a committed Star Wars fan, and I think the commodification of it uh, has detrimental effects to the quality of not just the movies that have been coming out, but also the franchise specifically. Uh, so that's mainly it on the copyright front. And then in the case of patents, um, I think drug pricing is a huge problem uh, in the broader healthcare debate. And this is something that Brink Lindsay has spoken about uh, in terms of the Medicare for All versus consumer-driven healthcare debate, is that you can support Medicare for All, but you're going to run into a huge sticker shock problem. If you're on the more consumer-driven side of the equation, there are concerns as to whether or not uh, the HSAs or whatever your preferred model will have enough cash in it uh, to afford certain healthcare costs. And at the end of the day, the largest driver um, are the regulations, practice restrictions for physicians, and drug prices uh, that are are driven largely uh, by the ability of patents to charge monopoly prices. So in that area, we think um, there was the largest amount of good to be done. And in particular on the right, and I guess this most closely relates to our paper, and or in addition to the more general policy arguments, you know, this, this component of law is good, this component of law is bad, um, we noticed that there was an interesting uh, and troubling stumbling block in terms of the way folks on the right discuss intellectual property, and that is the treatment of it as a, an actual property right. Um, and we think that is bad because it simply doesn't satisfy the uh, – the, um, characteristics of physical property, as I believe it is correctly understood. And so there is a a definite ideological hurdle that needs to be cleared for the right 
uh, to be, I think, a force for tremendous good because if it's not property, then it is, as we view, um, a subsidy. We also like to use the term intellectual monopoly. But at the end of the day, it's a subsidy for creative works. And that's not necessarily to say we should get rid of the institution wholesale because it's not property. In fact, it's a, a regulation, subsidy, whatever term we use. But we need to approach it very skeptically and very critically the way we would any other subsidy. For listeners who may not be as familiar with property theory, I wonder if you could kind of take a step back and talk in a kind of big picture sense about the different theories of justification for property more broadly that you talk about in your paper and which and why of those theories you find compelling. Sure. So there are two main theories for the justification for property rights more broadly uh, that we discuss. The first is what we label um, the consequentialist case for property, which is based largely um, on uh, the work of uh, of, uh, uh, Harold Demsetz, who wrote the seminal article on a towards theory of property rights. And additionally, the theory we wrangle with is the more Lockean justification in terms terms of a dessert for property rights when you can claim ownership of something that you have taken out of the commons. Personally speaking, I find the Lockean case for private property um, more compelling, though I think they both have – uh, they both have uh, merits. That speaks to me personally. I think there is something to be said for giving the individual the right uh, to claim exclus- exclusive use with some uh, limitations and more extreme conditions based on something that they have either worked for or taken from the commons or uh, uh, taken from voluntary exchange. But those are the two main theories um, that we operate under, why it makes sense in the case of physical property and why either the nature of ideal objects or intellectual property simply doesn't apply. And that's in the case of the consequentialist um, Depsetzian argument or why in the Lockean case, there is no limiting principle and you find yourself worked into a corner of some very strange uh, or rather why you can draw some very strange conclusions about what intellectual property law looks like if you adopt a hardcore Lockean framework and why when you uh, take it to those absurd uh, conclusions, it's a theory uh, that just has to be abandoned. Hmm. Well, maybe you could talk then a little bit about how intellectual property like patents and copyrights are different from physical property like land or personal property, and how, if at all, you think those differences might affect the way we think about the sort of rights we're going to recognize in those two different kind of categories of of ownership. Sure. Uh, so in that case, we could discuss um, Demsetz's work. And so in his article, he bases his justification for property on a kind of internalizing externalities, making sure that we avoid the tragedy of the commons argument. He uses an example of uh, Native tribes living in what is now Canada. That is recent historical scholarship has uh, called into question his exact history. But the point makes tremendous amount. uh, The point still holds, and you can see other examples of his arguments, such as in the Jamestown colony. Essentially, in his paper, he, uh, in his conclusion, very briefly addresses arguments for why his logic on physical property uh, necessarily extends to intellectual property in that if we do not grant someone a property right over their creative work, either their invention in the form of a patent or a, a, a artistic work in the case of copyright, um, then there will be no incentive to innovate because people will simply free ride uh, and take the ideas and nobody will be able to capture a um, – 
uh, sufficient return on that matter. Uh, in in that front, this is also uh, related to the uh, Joan Robinson paradox of patents argument, where we must temporarily prevent the diffusion of innovation so that there are sufficient incentives to innovate in the first place. The problem I have with those arguments is that the nature of ideal objects is not like that of physical property. So the most obvious one is that ideal objects are non-rivalrous. I rather like the Thomas Jefferson metaphor comparing the transmission of idea of lighting a candle. You know, just because I give you light from mine does not mean that yours is diminished in any way. In that way, we can view um, ideas as the ultimate public uh, public good, because eventually, you know, in the sort of classic economic examples like a public park, there is a theory, you know, there is a maximum number of people who can fit on uh, the national mall, mall or a local park or anything like that. But a theoretically infinite number of people can think the same thought, sing the same song, uh, read the same book, um, what have you. But in addition to that, you run into a problem where uh, uh, the justification for creating property rights is to make sure that you avoid violent collisions. You know, only one of us can shoot a ball, use the same piece of land at the same time. Those types of violent collisions simply don't exist in the case of uh, ideas. So, so in our paper, we use the example of the couples from the Flintstones, uh, Fred and Wilma and Barney and Betty, to demonstrate how uh, the justification for property rights in terms of creating stop signs to prevent violent collisions simply doesn't apply in the case of ideas. So if Fred sneaks over and steals apples from Barney's land, well, obviously only one of them can eat those apples at the same time and we would regard it as wrong. But if Wilma steals a song that, they, that was being sung to their child uh, overnight, well, both of them can sing the same song. There's no instance of a violent collision over who can use something at the same time. And even though under a uh, intellectual property maximalist, maximalist position, stealing the apples and stealing the song are would be considered the same form of theft, that doesn't really square uh, with the intuition of many people in that the song still exists for both parties, but the apples only exist for one. So in those two instances, we see that the analogy simply doesn't uh, hold. Additionally, jumping sort of back and forth to a natural rights framework, uh, only government can decide who actually controls the right to an ideal object and what the scope of that right entails. And even though in the land, of, uh, in the realm of physical property, you do have some corner cases. You know, you have how much land, uh, how much land can you really control when you fence it in, or the nozick pouring uh, radioactive uh, tomato juice into a piece of water to see who owns it. There's a pretty clear formula in terms of how you can take something out of the commons. Whereas in the land, whereas in the world of um, ideal objects, you need a body in the form of the government to actually define it. So uh, so in one instance, you have, uh, in terms of physical property, how can we take a resource and allocate it to someone, uh, a resource that is scarce? In the uh, case of ideal objects, you have a body, uh, namely the government, creating scarcity where there previously was none. Mm. Well, so, so Daniel, like, I got to say that, you know, when I'm talking to my students, both undergrads and and my law students, I often find that in the case of intellectual property, a lot of students have a strong intuition that people ought to have a right to be able to control the way that the creative works that they generate, and maybe to a lesser degree, but but still to control the way that the inventions and discoveries that 
that they make or use, or at the very least that, you know, they want to have the right to control those things, whether or not they they should. And, and I wonder, should we take those kinds of intu- intuitions seriously, do you think? Or th- is there some kind of mistake embedded in that intuition? I think there is absolutely an intuitive appeal. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, you've made your opinions on plagiarism quite clear. Um, but I think there is is something to be said for wholesale copying. We come out in our paper against just blatant commercial um, infringement. But I think that appeal, that uh, intuition, is wrong for a couple of reasons. To begin, I think you absolutely have a right if you write the next great American novel or develop the cure for cancer or whatever. You can share it with as many people as you want or take. It to the grave with you. That is absolutely your right, uh, as it's the right to your mind. How how else would we take it from you other than just torturing it uh, out of you? But once you've shared it out into the world, preventing someone else from using it represents uh, an infringement on their property, right? So the example I like to use is if I design uh, a new mouse trap, it is mine. And if I decide to share it with the world, and I get uh, a patent on it, someone else can have justly acquired, either through appropriation or free exchange, all of the components necessary to make that mousetrap, and it is unquestionably their property. But all of the sudden, when they decide to make it into my patented design, that represents a violation of my property rights. Somehow, the sum of their parts becomes my whole, which I think is silly. So it represents a violation, in fact, of someone else's property rights to not use an idea that was transmitted to them in some way. The second problem I have with that argument in terms of we need to have ownership of it um, is that a lot of folks don't realize how much borrowing or incremental innovation and building on uh, on top of uh, previously existing ideas is a part of the creative process. So uh, since the new movie is coming out, I'd love to bring out the example of Star Wars. Um, uh, George Lucas freely admits that the idea of um, presenting the original movie from the perspective of two lowly characters was taken from the Hidden Fortress. Uh, Many people, I think, accurately describe Star Wars as just World War II in space. So there's a tremendous amount of borrowing that comes. And finally, when you have Flash Gordon Conquers the Universe, the opening title crawl is is, um, virtually identical, just set in a a, a different context. So there's a tremendous amount of borrowing that people uh, either do deliberately or subconsciously uh, that is part of the process. And, And so in that way, I think uh, we should I view the creative process as, if not totally porous, then certainly leaky, and we should tolerate uh, certain degrees of borrowing and recognize that it's inherent part of the process. So I understand the intuition that they want a certain degree of control, and I am fine with, at the very beginning of the phases, allowing them uh, to have control over whether or not they release it into the world. But between the amount of borrowing that's inherent in the creative process and the fact that saying, here's an idea uh, that you have come across for whatever reason, and you cannot do with either yourself or your property uh, something that incorporates that idea, it also represents uh, a violation of someone else's creative rights and property rights. Mm. Well, so as I understand it, Daniel, you're not totally opposed per se to patent and copyright protection, but rather have certain criticisms of patent and copyright policy as they currently exist. So, so I wonder if you could kind of pick out a few of what you think are the biggest problems with patent and copyright policy and talk a little bit about what kinds of reforms or changes you think would be most effective 
and making them work better and more consistently with sort of legitimate theories of justification. Sure. Uh, so I'll start with copyright. The biggest one is that terms need to be reduced dramatically. Right now, they are comically long. And in fact, they go beyond uh, Ayn Rand's preferred term for intellectual property. I think hers was uh, life plus 50. And now you have life plus 70 or de- depending on uh, the length of term or depending on the, uh, the nature of the work, how long the terms are. These should be cut dramatically. I think um, something like what we have in the Copyright Act of 1790, 14 years, uh, registration requirements, of course. I think there should be significant formalities in order to receive an intellectual monopoly. Um, so somewhere around 28 years maximum, 30 years maximum, I think is a, a, a good solution. If I, I did just some uh, back-of-the-envelope num- uh, analysis, and if we had the terms that we had uh, in 1790, then something like 90% of the films uh, on the AFI's top 100 list would be out in the public domain. So that is top of the list. But for works that already are under protection, uh, that would be protected, even in my ideal copyright regime, we need to dramatically expand uh, what people are allowed to do under uh, under fair use, or a similar way to achieve that goal would be to significantly narrow uh, what counts as a derivative work and the protections that the original rights holders receive for derivative works. Um, in our paper, we are fine with, say, um, giving people control, like so George R. R. Martin could have control over not just, obviously, the books um, that he's written, but also any TV adaptations. But even then, I'm somewhat skeptical, uh, partly because a significant creative effort, uh, whether or not that creative effort was good is another question, but a significant creative effort went into producing an adaptation of an original creative work. So if we care about protecting the the rights of creators, perhaps we can recognize that people who take something in a different direction or translate it into a different medium deserve uh, credit there as well. But also, if you look at it from a purely financial perspective, and we do view intellectual property as a subsidy, um, what a tremendous boon for HBO to pick up your books. Uh, George R. R. Martin, I was, I was just looking it up. In 2011, when uh, Game of Thrones uh, first came out on HBO, 8 million copies of his books were sold. It's a tremendous boon for him. Um, and if you can imagine a universe where he decided to just not license his books or not give people the, abil- uh, uh, the ability to create a TV show for whatever reason, he really would have shot himself uh, in the foot on that one. So derivative works are something we want to dramatically reduce uh, the, the control over. And um, returning to fair use, I think we should dramatically, uh, or, or rather, we should make it much clearer right now. It's simply a list of things to consider. I would much prefer fair use uh, be strengthened in terms of one of the four categories. If you meet one of the four criteria that is currently listed in the statutes, it is automatically considered fair use rather than just a, a weighing concern. So those are uh, my thoughts. Those are some of the proposed solutions we offer in terms of uh, copyright. Moving into patents, uh, terms are not necessarily the problem in terms of the original uh, original things, and this is something we don't mention in the paper. But rather, and this is specific to the case of product, uh, this is specific to the case of pharmaceuticals. Rather, or rather, we see patent thicketing and product hopping as a significant issue. So, in the case of um, product hopping, you have pharmaceutical. Humira is probably the best 
best example of this, where the original term is about to run out. And so you introduce a minor change to the drug that is still uh, that covers a second patent, and you're able to extend the term far beyond what was originally intended. Greater scrutiny of that specific practice, perhaps uh, labeling it as anti-competitive or uh, increase or changing patent examiner guidelines to not allow these rather minor incremental changes is a necessary step to keep patents um, exactly uh, where they are. Additionally, um, we believe uh, we believe that simultaneous invention is something that should uh, be protected. So you have uh, the case of so Apple versus Samsung where a patent uh, that was later found to be invalid was, or rather an invention covered by a patent that was later found to be invalid um, was independently discovered. And, you know, take that, uh, whether or not you believe that claim uh, you can do uh, uh, is, is up to you. But in that particular instance, we see some, uh, we see a firm that was creative that came up with an idea completely independent um, of knowing about the patent. And I think that should be protected. This is something uh, that Robert knows it comes out for, even though he was moderately, uh, or at least was willing to tolerate patents in his discussion of property rights. He says that in the instance of true independent discovery or simultaneous in, in, uh, invention, uh, it's fine to give the other person a patent. We are fine with either giving someone else the patent or uh, allowing it to be an affirmative case or an affirmative defense um, against infringement. Well, it seems like a big part of the move that you're making in this white paper is sort of a shift from a property paradigm to something that sounds more like a policy paradigm, looking at patents and copyrights as a form of government subsidy rather than a kind of pre-political property right or something. Is that a fair way of characterizing the shift that you're making here? And if so, why and how do you think that affects the kind of perspective we might have on the legitimacy of this kind of regulatory regime? Sure. No, I, I think um, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. Uh, I also like to throw in the word uh, intellectual monopoly because it has a, a nice sting that I'd like to give uh, that I'd like to give to the term. Uh, so we think that there are some cases, pharmaceuticals are the immediate case that come to mind, uh, where the cost of innovation is high, uh, the risk of free riding is also high, but the cost of imitation is low. So it is necessary in order uh, to promote innovation in some cases uh, to, to provide some form of government, uh, form of government support. But when you have a specific category of to, uh, of tools that promote this innovation in the form of patents and copyrights, and you have identified uh, them as a property right, will you give them a special status and that elevates them above all the other tools we have to promote innovation? And it also doesn't encourage, or rather it discourages a case-by-case -case, uh, analysis of when does this uh, granting a subsidy make sense? When does it not make sense? Another proposal we have for reforming uh, the patent landscape is to get rid of software and business method patents, partly because they tend to be very broad uh, and, in, and create lots of opportunities for people to accidentally infringe. Um, additionally, these are areas where either the cost of innovation is relatively low um, or the cost of imitation is uh, relatively high and that it requires some particular technical skill. Um, so it, if you look at it on a case-by-case -case basis in terms of how are we going to allocate this subsidy, it would encourage a more critical view. Additionally, if we're just going to call it a subsidy, which I'm perfectly fine calling it, uh, it puts 
uh, patents and copyrights on the same tier in terms of what is the appropriate role for government as uh, increasing NIH funding or providing grants. Some type of prize system would also be desirable. And I think once we categorize them both as subsidies, then prize systems or broader funding for academic research in exchange for all of that knowledge uh, being free for all to use looks much more attractive because the goal is to create a temporary monopoly so people can recoup the upfront investment costs. But you could also view it as a tax that instead of going directly to the government, uh, goes to the private innovator. So you're paying monopoly prices that functionally acts as a tax in order to pay for this innovation. Well, that's fine in the case where the cost of innovation is high, but perhaps it would be preferable to finance it through our more progressive uh, tax system rather than it just being you know, a lump sum tax added on to consumers. So when you view it as a subsidy and they're the same thing, now it becomes a question of, well, how are we going to finance it and doing it through a progressive rather than a regressive um, tax system uh, looks much, much more attractive. Uh, so in addition to the fact that we have it organized or rather that we identify it and place it in the same tier as other classes of subsidy or government grants of privilege, specifically towards the political right, which is uh, uh, for whom, uh, which is our ideal audience, uh, in the case of this paper, we would like a more general skepticism that uh, should exist in forms of government regulation. This does not mean we are categorically anti-subsidy or even categorically anti-intellectual uh, monopoly, but encouraging a far more critical look in terms uh, as far as the privileges that government uh, grants, even for noble goals, I think is worthwhile. And that's what we are trying to do uh, with this paper. So Daniel, in closing, one of the things that really got me interested in this white paper and prompted me to reach out to you to talk about it was that it's sort of a libertarian-ish inflected critique of intellectual property policy, which is something I haven't seen as much of as I kind of in the abstract might have expected. And in fact, I tend to see a lot of kind of people who self-identify as libertarian-ish as being very kind of pro-intellectual property and very kind of strongly in favor of expansive copyright and patent protection. So I mean, I wonder if you could just reflect on whether my perceptions are accurate, and if so, why you think that tends to be the tenor of a lot of the conversation in that space, and how you see this paper intervening in that conversation. Sure. Um, there is absolutely a divide in sort of uh, libertarian, both people who are you know, uh, whole cloth libertarian or folks uh, on the political right more broadly who share libertarian views on property rights. There's definitely a divide in terms of how we handle uh, intellectual property. For example, Reason Magazine, um, I believe it was last year or earlier this year, had their debate issue. And they, one of the topics was intellectual property. So there is definitely a healthy debate in terms of why folks um, on the sort of libertarian end of the spectrum in terms of property rights subscribe to the view that they are property. Um, I think there are a number of reasons. First, for folks who subscribe to a Lockean dessert view of why we should have property, this is not to dismiss the fact that a great many people uh, put a significant amount of labor into producing ideas the same way you could produce uh, put a significant amount of labor into tilling a field or making a widget or something like that. So there is absolutely this intuition. The problem is 
not only this necessarily leads to violations of others' property rights in terms of saying what you can and cannot do with your property without paying um, the rights holder, but it also takes you into some strange places. For example, if copyrights and patents were truly property, uh, then they would have them last indefinitely. You, you know, I could create something and then give it down the line and it could stay private uh, forever, but I don't think any serious person would argue uh, that intellectual property should remain um, private forever. So I think there's, um, to a certain degree, a trap that has fallen into. I think Demsets uh, has does have a point in uh, identifying what Robinson would later call the paradox of patents, and that's another very strong case for private property. Uh, the issue is that it confuses um, the issue with cost of innovation being high, cost of imitation being low, with a broader idea that you must um, manage issues of scarcity in order to promote uh, the healthy stewardship of property due to the fact that intellectual property is not rivalrous. There's a separate question of whether or not we need to provide sufficient incentives for folks to innovate versus whether or not uh, exclusive control of an idea will lead uh, to the, to that idea no longer uh, not being utilized, which obviously doesn't hold for ideal objects. I think you also potentially run into the issue of uh, a, a general anti-subsidy uh, free market view, and I'm, I'm deeply skeptical uh, or I'm generally skeptical of intervention in the market in the forms of subsidies, regulation, uh, and I'm not categorically an, uh, uh, opposed to that. But I think it is an, in, uh, an attempt to, and this is a, a very cynical view that I don't think a lot of people hold, but I think you run into uh, an attempt to sort of square the circle of there are very clear market failures in the case of, you know, pharmaceuticals and certain other creative uh, and certain other um, ideal objects, but we do not care for subsidies or government intervention. So if we can identify this thing as a property right, which is good, and government has a role um, in protecting, then we are able to resolve that issue. And it is true. I mean, if if I could be convinced that ideal objects were um, property, I don't see that happening anytime soon. But if I could be sold on that issue, it would put me in a relatively difficult spot had we balanced property rights uh, with the need for invention. I simply don't think uh, that is the case, however. Mm. Well, Daniel, thanks so much for coming on the show to talk about this white paper. I was happy to read it, found it really interesting, and this is a stimulating conversation indeed. I'm, I'm glad to hear a sort of uh, burgeoning interest in intellectual property policy and criticism on the libertarian end of the spectrum. Thank you so much for having me. Um, like I said, it's this is not uh, categorically anti-intellectual property, but rather it is in support of a more accurate view of the institution as a regulation, as a subsidy, as a more general uh, government intervention to properly inform the conversation going forward on how uh, we should treat these issues in the form of a very uh, technocratic um you know, producing best policy outcomes rather than a right that must be protected uh, necessarily. Hill, a ragged band they called the diggers came to show the people's will. They defied the landlords, 
they defied the laws They were the dispossessed Reclaiming what was theirs We come in peace, they said To dig and sow We come to work the lands in common And to make the waste grounds grow This earth divided We will make whole So it will be a common treasury for all The sin of property We do disdain No man has any right to buy and sell the earth for private gain By theft and murder, they took the land Now everywhere the walls spring up at their command They make the laws to chain us well The clergy dazzle us with heaven or they damn us into hell We will not worship the God they serve The God of greed who feeds the rich while poor men starve We work, we eat together, we need no swords We will not bow to the masters or pay rent To the lords, we are free men, though we are poor You dig us all, stand up for glory, stand up now Property, the orders came. They sent the hired men and troopers to wipe out the diggers' claim, tear down their cottages, destroy their corn. They were dispersed, but still the vision lingers on. You poor take courage, you rich take care. This earth was made a common treasury for everyone to share. All things in common, all people one. We come in peace, the orders came to cut them down. 